0: We're we'll turning your Bibles to Matthew 26, we're we'll continuing, of course, our study of the, the gospel of Matthew, and Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews. He is the Messiah and the Savior. We're seeing the final week of Christ's life before his death and resurrection. In fact, we're just a couple of days away from him going to the cross from Passover, and he's going to die on the cross to pay for our sins and then rise again. He has just finished <clears throat> this teaching about the end time events, and uh, we call it the tribulation. And now what he does, he talks to his disciples, and he plainly tells them when and how he will die. I don't think they've understood that. He's told them already three other times in the gospel of Matthew already that he's going to go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the religious leaders, be handed over to the Gentiles, and then die. And he hasn't really told them, but he did say die and rise again. And uh, they hadn't put it all together yet. But this is the first time he actually says crucifixion we'll see how that ties together he said in the gospel of john that he would be lifted up and that was a sort of a, a veiled aspect of crucifixion so he's been talking about this now in this passage we're going to see a contrast between the love and sacrifice of a woman and the greed of judas and we'll see how that ties together. This woman comes and basically uh, sacrifices some some uh, oil uh, that cost a lot of money, and she anoints Jesus with it, while Judas goes to the religious leaders to, uh, to, to betray him. You could ask the question, you know, if Jesus is the Messiah, why didn't the Jewish people... Why didn't they see him? Why why did they miss him? Well, I think they were looking for a lot of different things. When you look in the Old Testament, they they weren't sure exactly. A lot of them thought he'd be the king, and he's going to come and just take over and rule, and that's not what they see Jesus doing. Religious leaders, we know, did not want their positions taken away. They, uh, they, they actually say in one part of the, one of the gospels, they said, listen, we're just worried that if he keeps causing all these issues, the Romans are going to come and take our positions away. So they decided it was better for one man to die for the whole nation. Well, this morning we see this contrast. The time has come for Jesus Christ to carry out the final part of his ministry, and that's to die on the cross to pay for sin and rise again. So and it's, it's powerful. And the name of Jesus, when we say the name of Jesus, it, it's in fact the greatest name ever. In the book of Philippians, it talks about that Jesus is the greatest name of all, this name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. When you say the name Jesus, it's amazing. Acts four twelve says, there is no other name given under men among heaven, under heaven, by which we might be saved. And so when you say the name Jesus, I always think of the the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord because he's deity. But when you think of Jesus, Jesus means Savior. It means Jehovah's salvation. And then the word Christ means the anointed one of God. We're going to see Jesus actually getting anointed this morning. And so when we talk about, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot. You can say the name God anywhere to people, and nobody gets upset. You can say, oh, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, everybody believes in God. Oh, everything's so wonderful. But when you start saying the name Jesus, it actually offends some people. Even some Christians are offended by the name Jesus because they think all you really need to do is think about God and when you start talking about Jesus. I've told you all about the religious organization on campus that I used to be a part of, and that was some 20 years ago. But I can still remember in a meeting that they said, now, and these these were religious organizations on campus, and they said, let's don't use the name of Jesus because it's offensive. Let's just say God. And so they asked us that if we were called on to pray on campus, don't say in Jesus' name, just say God's name. They said that. And there was even a woman in there who said, I would ask you all not to use the name Jesus around me because it offends me. Well, it is the name of names, the name above names, the, the name of the Savior. There's no other name given. And so when we think about the name Jesus, he indeed is the Savior of the world. And and so what we're seeing this morning is this contrast between one who loves Jesus and one who, and I wouldn't say that he hated Jesus. I wouldn't say that Judas hated Jesus. I would just say that Jesus wasn't what he thought he wanted. Uh, I think Judas wanted a king. Judas thought when Jesus comes, he's going to rule, and I'm going to get to have a place of responsibility. And I think he began to realize that Jesus' rule wasn't exactly like he thought, and I think he decided to go to the other side. That That's what we see. And so we're going to see a contrast between what some call say, love and hate and sacrifice and greed, and we'll see it as we go through the passage. I look at it this way. We see one, there's a woman who loves Jesus and sacrifices greatly. There's another named Judas and the religious leaders who really, the religious leaders hate Jesus. I'm not sure how Judas fits in there, but there's greed involved and we'll see it. So as we look at this passage this morning, I think there are two things that stand out. One is the anointing by the woman for Jesus Christ's burial. And see, so that's what they didn't grasp it. She did. You know, it's funny how the women saw a lot of the things that the disciples didn't see. They just, they didn't see it. They saw it. I mean, she's going to come anoint him because she knows he's going to die. But if you ask the disciples, is he going to die? Even though after Jesus told them three different times he's going to die, they would say something like, I don't think I understand what you're really talking about. And then we're going to see the betrayal by Judas to the religious leaders. So let me give you the outline of the passage. We're going to see in verses 1 through 5, the plot to kill Jesus, we're going to see what Jesus says, and then the plot, and then the anointing by the woman, and we're going to tell you uh, uh, this passage doesn't tell us who the woman is, but one of the other gospels does, and it may surprise you if you if you haven't read it, if you haven't thought about it, who is this woman that comes in and anoints Jesus? And then we're going to see the betrayal by Judas, and uh, it's it's pretty pretty terrible. And uh, so remember, they've been on the Mount of Olives, they've been looking at. The, the city and they've been seeing the temple and Jesus has been talking about the end times and what's going to happen and he's told them that one of these days at the end there's going to be all the wars and rumors of wars and then he's going to come as the king of kings and the lord of lords and there's going to be a separation of the sheep from the goats and at the end of the tribulation those who have believed in him who didn't take the mark of the beast they're going into the kingdom and those who rejected him took the mark of the beast uh, they're going to they're gonna be put to death and we'll see more about that at another time but here Here's what happens. Notice verse twenty six, uh, chapter twenty six, verse one. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples. Now he just been teaching about his return, and he there's been times all the way through. It says he set his face toward Jerusalem, that he knew he was going to come and die and pay for sins. If you if you realize it, the time that Je- the, the first time that Jesus came. And we've been seeing in Matthew 24 and 25 the second coming of Jesus to be the king. But the first coming, he came to die, to die for us, to pay for our sins. And he's been telling us that. We've seen that he came through Galilee and then Jericho and then into Bethany and then on into Jerusalem. And he ended with a big crowd shouting and singing. He taught in the temple. He's been teaching from the Mount of Olives. And now he gets very specific to his men. Now think about these 12 men. They have been with him almost all of them from the beginning. Now, uh, a few of them were, were the very beginning of his ministry, and then a few others uh, came, and then at the point in time, Jesus picked 12 of these these men, and they've seen his miracles. They've seen his life. They've seen, uh, they've learned from his teachings. We, uh, They still haven't grasped it. And so he's going to tell, in this passage, he's going to tell the time and the method of his death. He's going to tell them this. So look at verse 2. He says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And so he tells them right there, the time two days from now at Passover and the method, crucifixion. So they're going to celebrate. The time is Passover. And when you think about Passover, we, we, it's, you know, we think of Easter, but Passover was the key because the Jewish people on the 14th day of the first month, the first month was Nisan. That corresponds to our March and April. That, that was when they came out of Egypt put the blood on the door, the angel of death passed over and they came out of Egypt and they've now come to the land and they're there. So every year, they celebrate Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month. Then, following that, on the fifteenth through the twenty-first, there was a feast called unleavened bread. And then, in there, in the, on the first day of the week, in there, there was a feast called first fruits. Jesus is going to die on Passover, and he's going to rise from the grave on first fruits. That's what's going to happen. And so he says to them, "If you know about two days from now, there will be the Passover, and the Son of Man will be handed over." And so this was a huge holiday. Uh, It was special. So Jesus died on Passover and rose on that next Sunday. And that's why we talk about the first day of the week was, was, uh, was called Feast of First Fruits in that, that particular time. So Jesus died on Passover, rose from the grave on first fruits, which happened to be the first day of the week. From after that point in time, we as the church, the body of Christ, we worship on the first day of the week because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week. And so Jesus died on Passover as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. So then he tells the method. And the method was crucifixion. Notice what he says. You'll know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, that's his title, the title of the Messiah, the title of the King, the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. When we think about crucifixion, uh, I don't think we understand the brutality, the, the horror that was there. I mean, they took a person, and they took the cross, and they usually were beaten, and then they had to carry the cross outside, usually outside the city, and then they were tied down, and then nails were put through, and then they put them up on a deal, and they put their feet together, and nails were put through there, and they fixed it just so that you could push yourself and hold yourself up, because as you begin to slump down, you it cut off your windpipe, and so most people died in crucifixion by suffocation. it wasn 't the nails through their hands or feet or anything. it was just they slowly just didn 't have enough strength to hold themselves up, and they suffocated and that 's why, if they wanted to end it quickly, they broke people's legs so they couldn't push up anymore, and they died quicker and so jesus says i'm going to die by crucifixion, and you know that they thought, "Oh my gracious, how horrible and the, and that 's the key now. At that time, Roman citizens could they weren't put to death by crucifixion. Only non-Roman citizens. And Jesus wasn't a Roman citizen, so they, they were going to crucify him. And we realized that Jesus is going to die for us. He's going to pay for our sins. He's going to the cross. Second Corinthians 5:21 says for him, you knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sins. In 1 Peter 3:18, he died for us, the just for the unjust, took our sins. So when we realize what is going to happen on the cross, that Jesus is going to take the sins of every human being, past, present, and future, and that means when Jesus died on the cross, it was future for us. He took all of our sins, every one's we ever have done, ever are doing now, and ever will do, and on the cross, he took those sins and paid the penalty. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus Christ died for us. And so he's the sacrifice. He's the substitute. That's something you can never forget. And we're going to get more, we're going to go a lot more detail as we get a little further into the Gospel of Matthew. But I want you to understand that he is our substitute and our sacrifice. We're going to see that Jesus Christ tells of the plan to die and to rise, paid for our sins. Now, let's see what happens. Now, let's look, verse 3. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Now, here's what happened. There was a high priest, his name was Caiaphas. And he brought together what was called the Sanhedrin. In fact, they would call it the elders of the people who were gathered together. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 people. And we're not sure whether there were 70 people and then the high priest or there were 69 people and the high priest made 70. And when they would meet together, the high priest was there and there would be a circle. Let me just show you. I think I've got a picture. This is, this is what they would meet. This would be the high priest. That would be Caiaphas. And this is the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they met, and they decided things. They were called the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling body of Israel. It says here that the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. So they're at his house, basically, to decide what they want to do. Now, here's what's unusual. And If you read the Scripture carefully, you'll, especially if you read the Gospel of Luke, you find out that there are two high priests. And you'd say, well, there's not supposed to be but one high priest, right? There are two high priests. See, if you go back to the beginning, there was Aaron. He was the first high priest. His oldest son would be the next high priest. His oldest son would be the next high priest. His oldest son would be the next high priest. That's how it was supposed to work. But by the time you get to the time of Jesus, the Romans had taken over everything, and they corrupted it all, and the Romans appointed the high priest, uh, they had appointed a high priest who was Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas. He had been the high priest, and then they stopped him from being the high priest, and they appointed Caiaphas. So basically, he had two high priests. If you study the Gospel of John, when Jesus got arrested that night, they took him first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. So Jesus went before both of the priests. So here it says, the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest. His name was Caiaphas, and uh, that, that's, you know, if this was real, that would be him in the middle, and they, they're all meeting to talk about it. Uh, he became high priest in uh, A.D. 18, so he's, he's there. He's been high priest for like 12, 13, 14, 15 years while Jesus has been doing his ministry. And then it says, in, in verse 4, it says, And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Now, they plotted. They said, here's the deal. In one other place, they'd already talked and said, it's expedient for one man to die. That it's better that our whole nation not get messed up by the Romans. We'll just better kill Jesus because he's causing so much problem. It's better if we just kill him. So they plotted together to sneak up by himself. They were going to get him, and then they were going to kill him. Now, I want you to think about this. They realized they couldn't outsmart him because every time they sent by somebody up to trick him, he tricked them back, and they couldn't grab him because they're in a public arena, he was so loved that as he walked, people were everywhere, so they couldn't come get him publicly. So their plan is to come capture Jesus by cunning, a sly plan. And the plan is just when nobody's watching, maybe at night, we'll sneak up and we'll get him. That's that's the plan. So that's what they're going to do. And and, and then notice in verse 5 it says, but no, they were saying, not during this festival, not during Passover. Why? Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. They said, we're not going to get him now. We're going to wait till after the Passover. See, their plan was not during the feast, but that's not God's plan. God's plan is that Jesus would die on Passover as the Lamb of God. See, as you know, that old saying, even the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. It is so true. They're saying, let's don't get him now because it'd be too big an uproar. But God says... The Son of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, must die on Passover because he's the Passover Lamb for us who would take our sin and be the Savior of the world. And he's going to rise from the grave on the first fruits, And that's what's going to happen. And it doesn't matter. And I want you to realize that God is in control, not the religious leaders. Jesus will die on Passover as the Lamb of God. It doesn't matter what they think. Now, the Romans were pretty pretty great in one sense. They usually allowed you to worship whatever way you wanted to as long as you still recognize Caesar. And so the Jewish people recognized Caesar and they had their own worship. Jesus is causing all kind of uproar because Jesus is saying that he's the Messiah and the Savior and the King. And, And they're saying, well, wait a minute, Caesar's king. And Jesus is saying he's king. And so there's all kind of issues. And so these men wanted to get rid of Jesus. And what I what I call this, and as you look at it, I call it religion uh, versus relationship. See, religion is man doing something to please God, and if you'd come, and we already saw, if you remember back in the chapter uh, where we saw all the woes. And he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. And outwardly, you look good, but inwardly, you look, you're really bad. And outwardly, you look like a whitewashed tomb. Inwardly, you're just dead bones. Outwardly, you look like a clean cup. Inwardly, you're a dirty cup. And he kept telling them that because they, they had religion. And listen, you, we all know people. There are people you know and come in common contact with every day that have religion. And religion is man trying to please God. As a person who says, if I go to church, if I try to keep the Ten Commandments, if I try to be good, if I try to do the right things, if I try to, you know, give things away, if I, I want to live right for God and He'll accept me, that's religion. And the religious leaders were all religious. They looked at the Mosaic law. They knew they couldn't keep it. They said they were keeping it. They made up all their other laws. They did everything. And they thought they were right before God. That's what they thought because that's what religion does. And so as we look at this passage, I want you to see the contrast between one who has love and sacrifice. That's the woman. She has a relationship with Jesus Christ. The other, we're going to see hate, fear, and greed, that's Judas. He has religion. Now, best you can tell from Scripture, Judas never put his faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. He's called the son of perdition. Jesus even says in one of the other places that he kept them all, all 11 of his disciples, all, 12, all 11, except one, and that is Judas. So the best we can tell, Judas never believed in Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior, never had trusted in him. So we see the contrast, one relationship, the other is religion. So let's start and let's see the love of a woman. And her sacrifice. Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. So we need to stop and say that Jesus at Bethany. Now, in Bethany lived Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You remember, the two sisters. And the brother, Lazarus died. Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's Martha and Mary. And Mary is the one that's always at Jesus' feet, and she just loves him. And Martha, it loves him too, but she's one of those practical things, and she's always trying to work and get things to go and everything like that. And so... They live in Bethany. Most of the time when Jesus would come, he would come to Jerusalem, and then at night he would leave and go to Bethany and most likely stay at the house of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Notice in this verse it says, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now this is a different person. This is when it says Simon the leper, it meant he probably at one time had leprosy, and most likely Jesus healed him. So Jesus is at this man's house. And so it's the same town. Now, let me show you something just to give you an idea. Don't read this. It doesn't mean anything. But that, there's Bethany. If you were coming from Jericho, you'd be coming across this way, and you'd come up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and there's a little town called Bethany. You'd go across this way to Bethpads. That's where Jesus got, they, they got the donkey. And then you would come down the side of the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, and down across the Kidron Valley, and then up into the temple. So Jesus would be in Jerusalem during the day, and all, at night he would go back up and he'd go to Bethany. Now he's not at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He's at the home of a guy named Simon the leper. But notice what happens. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. In Matthew, she's unnamed. One of the other gospels tells us it's Mary. It's Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It's Mary The one who's always at Jesus' feet, the one who loved him, the one. And so she comes to this house and she anoints him. It says, A woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And so he had this vial, a bottle that was filled with expensive perfume. This is what it most likely looked like. That's what it says. And what they would do when they had the perfume in there, if they really wanted to to get rid of it all, they would break this part right here, and it would be able to pour out. The best we can understand is she did that. Uh, She broke it. And poured it. And it says here that she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And by the way, the, uh, the perfume was called muran, which is very similar to uh, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're not even sure. It could have been myrrh. In fact, most likely it may have been myrrh that she poured on him. This was the thing that they would uh, use perfume for, and then they would also anoint bodies that had passed away. And what she's saying is, I'm pouring this oil on him because I'm getting him ready for his burial. Okay? Even though he hadn't died yet, she's getting him ready for the burial. It says she poured it on his head, and uh, the Gospel of Mark says she also poured it on his feet. So that's her pouring this vial on his head, and that's her pouring it on his feet. That's just some pictures that people have made up. And, and you can imagine when she poured this out, the smell filled that room. It was amazing. And she's anointing his body. Now, I want you to think about this. She's anointed in his body, and who was anointed in the Old Testament? Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. He's the prophet, the great prophet, Deuteronomy 18 15. He's the great prophet because not only does he speak the word of God, he is the word of God. He's the great high priest who offers his life as a sacrifice for us. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So he is the prophet, priest, and king. So she's anointed him. Now watch the response. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? For the perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. They're all upset because they said, good gracious. In fact, the word indignant also means anger. And best we can tell, Judas is the one that's really doing the talk. In the other Gospels, we see this. In fact, it says this might have been sold at a high price. Most think that that was worth about 300 denarii, which was almost a year's wages. That'd be like taking your year's salary and pouring it out at one time. Now, Judas, we see from one of the other Gospels, he's really mad. And it says, this could have been given to the poor. Why did this woman waste it? And it goes on to say that he didn't really care anything about the poor. He was the one that kept the money box. And so he would have wanted that money. And it actually says that at times he stole money out of the box. So Judas, let's face it, Judas was not a really, he was not a good person, okay? Let's just face it. And, and so here it is. It's most likely Judas. It says, when the disciples were indignant, why the waste, the perfume might have been sold, money given to the poor. And so they're saying all that, but Jesus, and, and Jesus what, is, what does he say? Jesus responds, was aware of this and said to them, why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed to me. You're basically saying, why are you troubling her? Can you imagine that she has poured this out on Jesus, and she's at his feet, and she's loving him? And some of them are saying, "What are you doing, wasting this? This could have been—we could have just sold this and got a lot of money and given it to the poor." That's what Judas is saying, giving it to the poor. Judas is saying, giving it to me. Uh, you're you're wasting money I could have had. That's what he's saying. But Jesus says, why do you bother this woman? She's done a good deed. And then he says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. Now, he's not saying the poor aren't important. He's just saying that if you really care about the poor, you're going to always have the poor. But the truth is, I'm only going to be here for a short time. In fact, it's not very long from now. He's going to, two days from now, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. He's going to walk on the earth for 40 days, and he's going to be gone. And so they don't have him much longer. And then he says this. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. She prepared Jesus for burial. You know what she knows? She knows he's going to die. If you ask the guys, hey, you think he's going to die? They go, I don't think so. We're not going to let that happen. I don't, I don't think so. We don't really understand what he's saying when he keeps saying that. She says, hey, if you listen to me, he's going to die. Why do you think I'm anointing his body? He's going to die. And the truth is, did any? if we would have been there, would we have want Jesus to die? I mean, if we had got to be with him for three years and seen the miracles and love him and think he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we know that he's coming and ruling, he's already told us, he's already told us that when he comes to rule, we'll rule with him. If you're one of the disciples, he's already said, you'll sit on one of the 12 thrones ruling Israel. You're saying, well, let's start that thing. No sense in waiting you know it sounds good to me and then he's telling him he's going to die and they're saying I, no I don't want I don't no I don't want to know that I don't want to know that and she says he's going to die and Jesus says she's done this for my burial she understood it when you think about a sacrifice this is a big sacrifice on her part but the big sacrifice that is coming is Jesus to die for us. Look what he goes on to say. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Wherever the good news message about Jesus is proclaimed, his death and resurrection, her act will be remembered. We're remembering it this morning. Anytime anybody reads through the gospel of Matthew, they remember what she did. And when you read through the other gospels, they remember what she did. 2,000 years ago, she did this. We're still talking about it. Let's talk for just a second about sacrifice. We say, oh, yeah, in the Old Testament, like, they would sacrifice animals. They would, uh, you know, if they wanted to do, like, they wanted to do what they called a thank offering to God. If they wanted to show God how much they loved him and thanked him, they would bring an animal and they'd put their hands on the head and they would say, oh, we thank you, God, and they'd kill the animal and it was a sacrifice. But we get to the New Testament, we say, no, no, Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin forever. And we say, well, there aren't any sacrifices today. Oh, yeah, there are sacrifices. There are sacrifices that we make. And and this was the great sacrifice there. But what are the sacrifices that we make as believers? And you may say, I didn't really know we made sacrifices. We do. Here's one our lives. Romans 12:1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your body as a living, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is that was good, acceptable, and perfect. You get to offer your life. Now, salvation is a gift and costs us absolutely nothing. The moment you trust in Christ, he gives you eternal life and you're saved forever. As a believer, you can offer the sacrifice of your life, you can say to God, I give you my life. I want to live for you. I want my life to count for you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I trusted Christ when I was 19. At age 26 is when I said to God, I give you my life. I want my life to count for you. I hope and pray that all of you in this room that know Jesus Christ, as Savior, it cost you nothing to have eternal life, but it cost you your life to offer your life as a sacrifice. When, when you offer your life and you say to God, I give you my life, you'll change. Your life will change. He will take you and use you beyond what you could imagine. There's a second aspect of what we offer. We offer our resources. In Philippians 4, verse 18, he talks about giving, and he says that uh, when people give... Like while ago, when we had the time for the offering, do you know that when you give, that's a sacrifice to God? So anytime you decide to take something that God's given to you and that you want to give it away, whether it's in our church or something else, that is a sacrifice. There's another one. It's called praise. Hebrews 13:15 says that when we lift up the praise and sacrifice of our voices, do you realize that when we're singing up here, when we're having those, the songs. And sometimes we call it the praise team, praise songs. You're praising God by singing. And when you sing to him, you are offering a sacrifice of praise. And then there's a fourth one, which is our service. In Hebrews 13, 16, he says, As you do good and as you share with these sacrifices, God is well pleased. So as you do good works, As you help people, as you share, as you give away, as you do those, those are sacrifices as well. So all of us in this room, we we can offer sacrifices beginning with our lives, our, our resources, our praise, our time, and our service. And we see what she did. She took something that was very expensive and gave it away. Now with that, let's see the contrast between what I call religion and relationship between sacrifice and greed. Look at what Judas does. After this woman has just sacrificed uh, a lot, what we'd say a lot of money to anoint Jesus for burial, then it says, then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest. Now, I want you to understand that we're, we're talking about two days before Passover. Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the priest. And he said, and said, what are you willing to give me, and look at the word, to betray him to you that, that idea, what are you going to give me? What will you give me? This is the greed. What will you give me to betray him? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. What will you give me? And what a contrast between the woman giving for Jesus, that's because she has a relationship, and Judas receiving for Jesus because he has religion. Some people ask, what, what would you do for money? What would you give up for money? Would you deny Jesus Christ for money? What would you do, you know? Judas is betraying Jesus Christ. And uh, notice verse 16. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. You know, that opportunity is going to come on Passover. That's exactly the time the religious leaders didn't want Jesus to betray to be handed over to him, but that's what's going to happen. He's looking for that opportunity. I put it this way. Judas swaps Jesus Christ for money. It's pretty sad. We all know people that swap things for Jesus Christ. They choose possessions over Jesus Christ. They choose jobs, career, popularity, all kind of things instead of our Savior Jesus. So as we look at this, we see love, Mary, Mary, her relationship, her sacrifice, it was basically a whole year's salary. We see the greed and Judas, which is religion, and they gave him uh, basically silver, which was about, by the way, it's about $120. It was, the, it was the, the price of a slave, which it was not really, really that expensive. It says they laid out to him 30 pieces of silver, which was about a slave, which was about $120. So as we look at this, what do we see? The plot to kill Jesus. Two days before Passover, the religious leaders want to kill him. He says that he's gonna die. They don't grasp it. Uh, the, the woman Mary comes in and anoints the body for burial, and Judas goes out and gets money to betray Jesus. So let me give you some applications. The first one is this: let's realize that Jesus Christ came to die and rise again to pay for sin. Why did Jesus Christ come the first time? He came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom. Romans 5:8. God demonstrates his love for us. Well, why are we yet sinners? Christ died for us. He died in our place. First John two two. He's the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Understand, Jesus came to die for you and for me. And that that has been done. That was done two thousand years ago. The response is to believe in Jesus Christ for. Eternal life. It is not our works or our goodness, it is anything. We're taking the gift of eternal life, which comes simply by faith in Jesus Christ. If there's anyone in this room who's never trusted in Christ, right where you're sitting right now, you can put your faith in Jesus. You can believe that He died for you and paid for sins and rose again, and you can trust in Him to give you eternal life. That's a relationship with Jesus. The second thing is just remember and understand the difference between relationship and religion relationship comes by faith in Jesus Christ and we have eternal life. It's an eternal relationship with Jesus. Once you trust in Christ, you're saved and saved forever. Religion is doing work somehow to please God. Religion is serving God out of fear. It's doing things thinking somehow we're going to earn God's pleasure. He already loves us beyond comprehension. He's already paid for all our sins. He's offering us the gift of eternal life. The last thing, and I'll go quickly through this, is let's offer sacrifices to our God and Savior. As believers, we can offer sacrifices today. They're not animal sacrifices. They're us. First of all, it's our lives. If you've never come to that point in your life, you'll never be the same if you do it. Now I know it's scary, It was scary for me. That was one of the reasons I didn't do it. I was afraid that if he told me, I was afraid if I said to God, I want my life to count for you, he wouldn't let me be a coach because I was coaching at Mississippi State, and I love coaching. I was coaching football and track. I got to do all the things I wanted to do, and yet I knew that I should be living for my Savior because he had saved me, and I wasn't living for him. And I said, Lord, but if I say to you I want you to take my life, uh, you're going to make me miserable, and I won't get to be a coach. and And it is scary because you give up your life. You actually say, it's not what I want, it's what you want. And I came to that place and I said, Lord, I want you to take my life. It's been the greatest life ever. I got to coach for a long time and then he changed my desires and I get to be a pastor. And so when you offer your life to him, it's a big decision because it's going to change you. It's going to change you for the rest of your life because you're saying to him, take my life, use me for your glory. Our possessions, everything we have, whenever you're giving on a Sunday morning, whenever you're giving, when you write a check, send it to the mail, whatever you do, that's that's an offering. That is a sacrifice. Our praise, when we sing those songs, think about it, the next time we're singing... Think about what you're singing, that's praise to God and that's a sacrifice to God. And then last but not least, when we serve him, when we do good, when we share, all of those are sacrifices to God. May we thank God for sending Jesus Christ and may we have a relationship with Christ, not religion, and may we take our lives and we offer sacrifices to our Savior.